everyone. It's Matthew DeMello and sitting here in Cross Border Solutions, Terrytown, New York recording studio, a.k.a. my office. I have to say Florida's gorgeous beaches and sweltering sunshine seem pretty far away right about now, but it doesn't take much to bring me back. In fact, today's episode of The Fiona Show, Cross Border Solutions Transfer Pricing Podcast, was recorded live from our client summit in Sarasota. And just hearing those words, profit level indicator, brings me back to a warm and wavy Gulf of Mexico. Now, granted, that phrase may not have the same effect on everybody, but you can see where I'm coming from. Without further ado, let's bring you the absolute latest in transfer pricing headlines. power does the EU Commission have? It seems the Commission itself is trying to figure that out, and the General Court of the European Union isn't exactly helping. In a September 24th decision, the court overturned a state aid decision in Netherlands versus Commission and relieved the Netherlands of the so-called burden of collecting 26 million euros from the Starbucks subsidiary for allegedly giving the coffee giant an unfair tax advantage against its caffeinated competition. Yes, in some countries, collecting 26 million euros is apparently a chore. Talk about scrutiny. The EU Commission made a case about a 2008 APA between the Netherlands and a Starbucks subsidiary, insisting that the agreements should have applied the comparable uncontrolled price method instead of the transactional net margin method. Them's fighting words, if you ask us. The court said the commission exceeded its authority. The commission clung to Article 107 of the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union, which prohibits tax measures that favor some taxpayers over others. But the court said, sorry, APAs don't count as special treatment. Well, yeah. So the commission's power is limited after all, sort of. The catch is that on the same day, the same court dismissed Luxembourg's appeal regarding a 2015 fiat decision, which costs fiat 23.1 million euros. Here, the commission argued that Fiat's APA used the TNMM inappropriately to reduce Fiat's taxable profits, and this time, the court agreed. So how much power does the commission have? Hey, would you let us know if you uh, figure it out? Well, it is official. Qatar has country-by-country report requirements, and they take effect on or after fiscal year January 1st, 2018. Here's how it goes. Multinationals headquartered in Qatar must submit CBC reports and notifications with the General Tax Authority if you meet the 3 billion Qatari Riyal, that's 824 million U.S. dollars, consolidated group revenue threshold. If you're located in Qatar but not an ultimate parent entity, looks like you're off the hook for now. I mean, regs like this change with the wind. If you are required to file, do so within 12 months of the reporting fiscal year and use the OECD's template to do it. The GTA is setting up an electronic portal where you submit in XML only, please. If you're a tax resident entity of Qatar, but your ultimate parent company is outside of Qatar, forget everything I just said because CBCR requirements don't apply to you. Of course, any information you submit and you had better submit all of it if you want to avoid non-compliance penalties of up to 500 Qatari Rial per day. That's roughly 140 US dollars will be shared with 54 countries with whom Qatar has exchanged relationships. So there's that to look forward to also. Believe me when I say we feel your pain about producing rock-solid transfer pricing documentation, but setting up those regulations is no picnic either. Okay, we don't expect you to come through with violence for tax authorities, but show a little compassion, especially for those authorities in developing countries. I mean, where do they even start? The Platform for Collaboration on Tax has one idea. 
Thanks to a request by the G20, the group, a joint initiative of the International Money Fund, the OECD, the United Nations, and World Bank Group, just released a draft toolkit for developing countries, a sort of how to implement transfer pricing documentation regs for dummies guide. Granted, not as catchy as astrology for dummies or beekeeping for dummies, but definitely more useful. When drafted correctly, documentation regulations should include enough information so tax authorities can identify high-risk transfer pricing, and not so much that multinationals are slapped with excessive compliance costs. The draft toolkit guides developing countries in finding that balance. It provides background information on transfer pricing regimes, discusses general policy options, and highlights individual types of documentation, master, local, and CBC reports. There are even a few real-life examples of how various countries have gone about their own transfer pricing practices, want to have a say in how developing countries are tightening their transfer pricing belts. The platform is accepting comments on the draft until November 8th and plans to release a final toolkit in early 2020. So speak now or, well, fill out the document later. Well, that's enough for me in Terrytown anyway. Here's the Fiona show recorded live at the Sarasota Ritz-Carlton. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. Just try to make it feel a little bit more like showtime. But hello, everyone. We're back for part two of the Fiona show on location in lovely Sarasota. And by lovely, we mean 90 degrees with full Floridian humidity. But then who could complain about a problem that can be solved by an ocean breeze and a poolside drink? Am I right? But before we head out to the beach club, don't worry. It it will still be there when we're through. Everybody relax. We've got one more special guest for you. Dr. Ednaldo Silva is with us today an economist you may know as the founder and managing director of Royalty Stat, a leading online database of royalty rates in Bethesda, Maryland. Even if you've never heard of Royalty Stat, you're certainly familiar with Dr. Silva's work, i.e. Section 482, the IRS's transfer pricing regulations. He helped draft those, so you can thank him or, well, you know what, let's just go with thank him (laughs) for, for those right now. And while Dr. Silva may have had a hand in some ironclad regulations, he's also responsible for some transfer pricing breathing room, Dr. Silva introduced the best method rule and also the concept that arm's length should be represented by a range of results instead of a point estimate. He also gave you another transfer pricing method to work with. That's right. He's the originator and developer of the comparable profits method. So when you talk about transfer pricing greatness, well, it doesn't get much greater. Today, 
Dr. Silva's sharing his expertise on a transfer pricing topic we all struggle with, why profit level indicators can be hard to trust and how to find ones that you and any tax authorities you're facing can rely on. Dr. Silva, it is a pleasure to have you with us today. Over to you, Mimi. Thanks, Matt. And Ennaldo, welcome back. We are so excited to have you again. He was uh, one of our featured guests on a previous podcast, which I think, if I'm not mistaken, Matt, had the most listeners. Is that right? Uh, that is right. He is our record holder. That's right. So before we get started, as always, let's just start with a couple of introductory questions. So you were, in fact, a policymaker at the IRS. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about what that experience was like? Well, uh, good morning. Good morning. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me again. I would like to acknowledge that we have a live audience, <laughs> and I thank you for your attention. So, uh, actually, policy, tax policy is done at Treasury. Mm -hmm. So I was uh, the senior economist or the chief economic advisor at the uh, Office of Chief Counsel. So it is the law firm of, um, of the IRS. And the chief counsel uh, drafts all the tax regulations and it uh, manages all tax uh, litigation. And of course, as you know, uh, Initially, it also. Sorry, you're 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 fine. You just <laughs> so it also uh, managed the APA program, but uh, uh, policy as such is done at uh, Treasury. Okay, and during your time, uh, during your time there, what did you learn about multinational companies? Uh, that they are complex. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. That's true. And, and, and being complex, what, what are the mistakes that you saw a lot of them you know, do, performing all the time? What are the mistakes that multinationals would make? Well, there is a fundamental you know, error that is a need that uh, it's easy to correct. And that is... Uh, tax planning in a sense of, from a corporate point of, point of view, in a sense of uh, breaking down an entity and moving functions to different jurisdictions. Moving functions, moving assets, and presumably also moving uh, risks must be done in connection with proper accounting procedures. Mm -hmm. So what is happening is that the planning is done, uh, but the data lags behind. So when the tax authorities come, and here I'm saying tax authorities in the plural, not only the IRS, right. there is always a death of data. That's to say it's very difficult for the tax authorities to obtain book accounts uh, at the legal entity level. So this leads to a presumption that the taxpayer is dodging or is hiding the ball. Hmm. So it leads to what I have said before, to a kind of audit that we call a shotgun approach. Since we do not have the data to formulate a theory, let us ask 
all we can. And this becomes an audit uh, management nightmare. Right, right. So, so I said easy to remedy because it must be understood that whenever tax planning is implemented, uh, it must t pass two tests. One is the economic substance test, which I have not addressed in my initial response, but it must pass the initial, uh, the economic substance test in a sense that functions are indeed uh, moved, that assets are migrated, and it must pass a second test, which is that the accounts must reflect the proposed the true nature change. of the business, right. And I actually think that that goes to one of the challenges Laurie was talking about before, the underlying data, and then even operationally being able to follow and implement the right accounting mm -hmm. so that the data matches the facts and circumstances, right? But this might be a good segue into actually the topic that we're going to be discussing at hand, which is understanding reliable profit level indicators, looking at the data and, and figuring out what is the best sort of profit level indicator and how do you apply them in complex comparisons? So you, you've been writing about reliable profit level indicators on your blog. What's, what's the general message that you've been trying to convey? Well, the general message is that we must produce indicators that have a theoretical underpinning and that uh, the metrics are reliable. And, uh, and I think this is a sensible, especially the second component is sensible because you cannot go to a CFO, let's say, with a range of results or with a target profit indicator that could change next year or two years from now. I think that it's important to get stability. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what I'm aiming at. And just to take a quick break to ask Fiona a question from our Tarrytown offices. Fiona, what are profit level indicators used in transfer pricing analyses? There are quite a few. There's return on assets, return on capital employed, return on sale, return on total costs, and the Berry ratio or return on operating expenses. Of course, different formulas are used to calculate each one. Thank you very much, Fiona. And before we move on, I want to give everyone listening at home their CPE code word, the first for the episode. And that code word is ratio, as in the Berry Ratio, or return on operating expenses is a profit level indicator used in transfer pricing analyses. Again, the code word is ratio. Now back to Mimi and Ednaldo in Sarasota, Florida. So in, so it's more so about uh, financial stability, perhaps even business forecasting, and, and so that you, you, when you're creating a, a profit level indicator, you're looking at a reasonable result over an extended period of time, right? Yes, um, when you look at uh, the U.S. regulations that were released in 94, you know, they were called the final regulations, but they have been subject to substantial revisions since then. And you look at the OECD guidelines that followed one year later based on the U.S. regulations. That is this idea of reliability. Mm -hmm. And this idea came from me mm -hmm. because uh, I was concerned that uh, we would encounter situations in which the taxpayer has a profit indicator, the tax authority has perhaps the same indicator, but they have two different measures of the same indicator. So in science, the, 
that the tie is broken by the estimator that is most reliable, meaning the one that has the smallest variance. So it was very uh, important for me, and it took quite a bit of persuasion uh, over the lawyers who were the, uh, the princes and the princesses of <laughs> drafting the regulations. I was a mayor, you know, advisor. The, you know, to, to convince them of this uh, property and how to, to draft this concern with the inside of the regulations. So, so this idea that you introduced, the, the reliable measure of profit, right? And so, uh, you know, how do you uh, define that? How do you define reliable? I, I mean, is it just a matter of the one with the least amount of variance, or is there, is there more beyond that that you were thinking? Shell is the one with the smallest uh, smallest variance. I mean, as we know, the vernacular or colloquial uh, meaning of uh, reliability is something that is dependable, mm -hmm. uh, some, something that is solid. Uh, and statistical principles, and it's a, uh, those are principles that are used by economists, psychologists, and the different, uh, different engineers in different uh, uh, fields, it is the principle that uh, an estimate must be stable that it must be consistent under uh, replication, under successive, successive trials. In, uh, in, uh, uh, in a nutshell, it is said that if you, if you stabilize the center of the PLI that you have selected, mm -hmm. the, the most reliable is the one that has the smallest uh, radius around the center. And I think what has happened is that Profit indicators are being selected with very wide range. Or profit indicators are being selected and adjustments are made to enlarge the range. So these results are inconsistent with what is uh, written in the, in the regulations. So you're correct that uh, a reliable estimate among competing estimates is the, the one that has the smallest variance, that has a smallest radius around the center. Taking one more pause from our Terrytown offices to ask Fiona the following question. Fiona, how do you choose a profit level indicator for a transfer pricing analysis? Well, Matt, it's difficult. Depending on the ratio used, practitioners do not show the same financial results from a given company. Each method depends on its own interpretation of the facts, which can impact the content of benchmarks and thus, the transfer prices. Thank you very much, Fiona. And I just want to take a moment to deliver everyone at home their second CPE code word for this episode, and that word is benchmarks. As in the profit level indicator you choose for a transfer pricing analysis can impact the content of benchmarks and thus transfer prices. Back to Mimi and Enaldo in Sarasota, Florida. So what makes certain profit level indicators problematic? I mean, it's it could be, you know, to your point, I think... That makes me think, all right, well, we should calculate all the different profit level indicators and see which one has the least amount of variation. But as you and I probably both know, that may not actually be the, the approach to this, right? It, to actually identify a reliable profit level indicator. So what's the problem with different okay. PLIs? So I can identify three problems. Okay. And uh, each problem... 
is an envelope that we can open and we can elaborate. The first problem is the base of the profit indicator, because a profit indicator uh, is on the one side on the numerator, the profit, sure. and here, uh, you know, the either gross profit, all methods based on gross profit have been defunct. So we are talking about methods based on operating profit, either before or after depreciation. So then there is a base, and there are three bases that are admitted in the regulations. One is net sales or revenue, mm -hmm. uh, which is on income statement is easy to, to verify because there are no deductions except for returns and allowances. So one only needs to verify if the returns and allowances are, are correct, and that's what the domestic examiner does. Or in some industries, if it includes excise tax, which we have to remove, mm -hmm. for example, in the tobacco, tobacco industry, revenue is included, uh, includes uh, exercise tax, so we have to remove it. Yeah. So the second base uh, is cost. And the third base, assets. What happens is that cost and assets are unreliable accounting numbers because they are composite accounts. So for example, uh, total cost includes COGS, now, all of you who know accounting and who are familiar with uh, Form 1125A, which uh, is a schedule of, of COGS, knows that you have change in inventory, purchases, direct labor if you have value-added, and other costs. And all kinds of strange things enter into Show other costs. Mm -hmm. And it's unstructured costs. I mean, you have to have a schedule, and the schedule varies from company to company, and it varies in a company from year to year. Mm -hmm. So it's a very dirty number. And then you go to operating expenses. Uh, where do you put depreciation? Is it included or excluded? Let's, for this purpose, say that we exclude operating expense. And then you have this issue of special items, extraordinary items, under GAP or under IFRS. They are after operating expenses, but you find that they migrate into operating expenses. So it's also a very dirty number. You know, so, but that is a, a base that you, you know, that you can choose, which means that you have to do a lot of diligence to make sure you know, that uh, the costs that you have conform with IFRS or with GAAP, and you have to make sure that the same thing applies to the comparables, and here you have limitations. Right. Because for the comparables, only one line is disclosed, which is COGS. You don't know what is the constitution of COGS. And frequently you have operating expenses, you don't know if it includes or excludes depreciation. Does it include amortization of acquired intangibles? So it's a very complex number. And then it comes to assets. Assets are very complicated. First of all, when you have a PLI based on revenue on, on cost, you have what economists call um, a dimensionless number. It's a pure number because you have a flow divided by a flow. It's a pure number. When you have a uh, profit level indicator based on assets, it's no longer a pure number because you have a flow of a stock. Mm -hmm. Now, the composition of, as of, uh, of assets uh, is even more complex than of cost. Uh, and in addition to that, you have the problem of the age of the asset and the depreciation of the asset. So even if you have two companies 
that acquire the assets in the same uh, fiscal year, mm -hmm. uh, if you look at two or three years down the road, the level of depreciation would affect what the net asset is. And then you have problems that you are aggregating assets that are depreciable, like property, plant, and equipment, with assets that are not depreciable, like accounts receivables and inventories. You're aggregating assets that are long-term, like property, plant, and equipment, or even longer, uh, buildings and structures, with assets of very short terms. So it is a melange of heterogeneous items. Uh, so it makes it very, uh, a very complex base. So that is one issue. The other issue is uh, that the PLI depends on the data from the comparables. Mm -hmm. So the first one is the base. The second issue is that uh, depends on the comparables. Now, in, in transfer pricing, there are two paradigms with respect to comparables. There is a param paradigm that I like, which is using public uh, company information. There is another paradigm using uh, privately held company data, which I don't want to elaborate here, but I think is an invitation to trouble. Um, but what happens is that the number of, uh, of uh, accounting footnotes that are disclosed uh, with, for, with the comparables are very limited. Right. So it's very difficult to establish comparability with respect to the numerator and the denominator sure. of the PLI. And finally, the problem is the method. That unfortunately, you know, I could not see very far ahead when I introduced the notion of using quartiles in the regulations. Mm -hmm. And to, you know, not to be so self-critical uh, uh, when the the 1992 uh, uh, and then 93 regulations were introduced uh, temporary um, uh, and provisional. The method was called the comparable uh, interval method. And we had two ranges. We had a range to diagnose, which was the interquartile range, and we had the range to adjust uh, to an arm's length amount, and that was called the confidence interval. So they all have the same center, but the range is very narrow. Hmm. And uh, when we, it came to the 94 regulations, after comments were received from the public, there was uh, quite a bit of hostility to the idea of uh, this very narrow range. And I think that a regulatory grace was to generalize the uh, use of uh, the interquartile range, and it creates a lot of problems. I have, for example, uh, last week I was involved in a meeting my work is primarily uh, controversy, order defense, or litigation, but primarily order defense in which we have a company that has $40 billion in revenue. And the range of results from 1% to 8%. So it's very difficult to hold that 1% of $40 billion in any given year is arm's length, but so is 8%. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think that we have then the issue of using bases that are more uh, easy to ascertain uh, under scrutiny, um, using uh, comparables with the base that are also easy to ascertain, and the third is using a method that produces a, a more reliable uh, 
measure of deviation from the center than the interquartile range. Hmm. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. So, in 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 practice, right? So the CPM and the TNMM, and, and it's based on the guidelines that exist today, it is to use the interquartile range. But if I'm hearing you correctly, you're in, in, in some ways you're basically saying perhaps there's a better way to create a much more narrow range that could also, that, that could be a little more reliable? Yes. Well, that is this uh, notion that is not... Uh, memorialized in the regulations, but clearly there is this understanding among practitioners that the amount of diligence is commensurate with the potential audit liability. Mm -hmm. So if you have a transaction whose adjustment is not going to, you know, to get you fired or <laughs> get the CFO to go to the audit committee or to the board and explain, you know, um, whether or not this is disclosed in the Fund 48, uh, what does this assessment uh, uh, mean? You need to you need to worry uh, about making a a, uh, a determination that I think is more resilient, more resilient to attack. And here it's hmm. difficult because there is a seduction of making a range that is very wide. Right. Because even if you're very aggressive, you pass the test. Sure. Sure. And then there is the carnage when that range is uh, uh, is challenged, mm -hmm. and, you, and you you can't uh, you can't defend it. So, but having a wide range, right? Let's just let's just you know, if you break it down, that's a result of the data that's coming back from the comparables that you choose, right? And so certain comparables might be outliers and um, and perhaps impact that arm's length range. And in practice, you could apply certain asset intensity adjustments or some sort of adjustment to those profit level indicators to theoretically increase reliability. But I think you have perhaps a different perspective there, yes? Yes, uh, uh, there was one thing I want to add to, to, to your prior question. Mm -hmm. And that is that when I lost the battle and the drafting of the, of the regulations of allowing for the adjustment to be assessed in a different way than the diagnosis, okay. Okay? Uh, for having this very narrow range based on what in statistics we call a confidence uh, interval, 
there was a caveat that was uh, introduced under dash uh, 42-1E, which is the arms length range, which says that ordinarily, that is not verb, I detest adverbs, but, uh, and in my, my writing, I go hunting for adverbs and I keep cutting them, crossing <laughs> them. Stephen King does the same thing. That's, a, that's, a, that right? that's one of his rules. He's a, he, he writes everything and he, and he hates adverbs and he goes through everything he writes the first time and gets rid of all the adverbs. So, so, so I had, the, I had the, this terrible you know, uh, problem with the drafters because they kept, you know, they would have in one sentence mm. two or three adverbs, and mm. it was just a nightmare for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but it, it says, ordinarily, the interquartile range is acceptable. Mm -hmm. But then there is my footprint, because that sentence follows, however, yeah. uh, under dash one, uh, 42-1E, however, you can apply a different statistical method, and here I did not want to specify, I left it to, to the expert and for the circumstances. However, a different statistical method uh, can be used if it proves or if it shows to be more reliable. So that is, uh, there are several footprints that I, you know, when I'm uh, feeling sorry for myself, I go through the regulations and say, that is, that is mine. That's your, that is that's mine. your line, that's yes. right, that's your contribution. Yes. <laughs> so, so but, but, you know, once again, that idea of more reliable, right? Yes. Could be, could, I mean, the idea of working capital adjustments or yes. asset intensity adjustments in theory is to create more reliability yes. when you're looking at an arm's length range. Yes, ideally, but in practice it's the opposite. The, what happens is that in this case that I have mentioned, you know, uh, of uh, the two days of meetings uh, last week, the and in this case, I'm representing the government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're on the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm representing the government. So what happens is that you know the taxpayer has a set of 20 comparables, mm -hmm. um, and I have objections to some of the comparables, and I can enunciate what the objections are. Okay. But if I take the 20 comparables, the medium PLI is 5%. Uh, okay. Five something, but 5%. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. But the taxpayer, through the advisors, made a series of, uh, made a set adjustments so that the middle went from 5 to 1. Hmm. So then, um, uh, and, and, and the, the range was, as I said, was from 1 to 8 with a middle at 5. And then after the adjustments, the middle is at one, so it went through half a percent to two and a half percent. Yeah, and, and, and in fact, you know, when I do see results like that, it does make me question the reliability of the yeah. adjustment because it, an adjustment should tweak the range and not necessarily yeah. create such a significant deviation. I mean, right? The rule is that if it's five percent, right. the adjustment cannot be more than half a point right. up or down. Right. And it has to be up or down. You cannot predetermine, but the way that the adjustment is uh, conceived or misconceived, it's always the actual of the comparables minus. Now, that minus is predetermined. You cannot predetermine. Minus an amount. Mm -hmm. So it's always unidirectional. And the amount of the adjustment uh, exceeds, I mean, it's 90% of, of the base. So 
as you have said, this is certainly a, a, a red flag. It's too aggressive. Sure. So even if we were to, you know, to accept the comparables of the taxpayer, which in this case we are not, because, you know, it has entities that are not incorporated in the, in the jurisdiction. They are lost companies. Their companies always incomplete data. So if we eliminate those, we are left with 13 companies. The middle doesn't change very much because the, what the interquartile range does is taking 25% of the data at the bottom and 25 at the top. So you, you're really saying, I'm going to work with 50% of the data mm -hmm. that, that has been presented. So I'm very suspicious of asset intensity adjustment. I have written on this topic, so it is not a trade secret. Uh, it's a position that I hold whether my client is uh, private or, or government. I believe that you have to test. You have to test if the asset intensity has merit, meaning sure. does it have a significant impact on, on, on the middle? If it has merit, then you introduce. But certainly, you know, I mean, there is this uh, fairly you know, famous statistical book uh, uh, written by Howell, Paul Howell, H-O-E-L in, in the 50s, has gone through various uh, editions. But in the earlier editions, they had this concept of the real limit of a number. And the real limit of a number was half a point. So if it's 1% is the center, the real limit is half in one point to, from half a point, half a percent to 1.5%. If it's 5%, it's 4.5 to 5.5. He uh, did not pursue this idea of real limits on the, on the later edition, but I think the, uh, the idea remains that you can't make an adjustment you know, that uh, overwhelms the center. Right, right. Well, this actually reminds me of something because, you know, I've been reading your work for a long time and, you know, going back about, I want to say 10, 15 years or so, I remember you took a position about looking at comps and saying, you know what, the universe of comps, it is what it is. And if I do a statistical analysis of all the distributors, regardless of the industry or anything, the range is always, what, 2 to 5%. Yeah. <laughs> and do you still take that position yes, these I do. days? You yes, still I, believe? Okay. Yes, I, yes, I do. I mean, and, and uh, that position was based on a lot of statistical research. Yep. And I have continued to do statistical research. And uh, as you know, I'm very much in favor of safe harbors. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have a distribution uh, of whatever and whatever industry, and you have 20, 25 comparables. And no matter how you slice the bread, you are going to find a range. And you have to do a lot of uh, magic you know, to deviate from. So I'm saying, well, let's have. Let's have uh, let's have uh, safe harbors. And since I also, as you have guessed, uh, am enamored with the idea of stability, I don't want a, a range that is going to vary from every three years. I want something that is, uh, you know, that is uh, uh, enduring. And, you know, it takes special circumstances to, to, change, uh, to, to change those numbers. I'm in favor of... Uh, you know, of uh, this idea that, uh, that search for comparables is, game, is a game. Mm -hmm. I think that the, the, the regulators uh, insisted on this idea with an incomplete understanding of the facts. Mm -hmm. 
um, for example, uh, I was very much against uh, judgment selection of comparables. And today we have judgment selection of comparables. Right. I mean, you, you start, let's say, with uh, 50 companies, and you narrow down to 12, 15, and you narrow down by uh, judgment calls. Right. Which means that, uh, not that I'm against judgment calls, because I think that you can't make decisions without involving judgments. But the judgment must be principle-based. Mm -hmm. But there is a lot of cherry-picking. So I'm very much against the idea of judgment call. I'm in favor of uh, random selection. So if you have 50, you can either use a 50, you know, and they don't want to do it because that's called industry statistics. And there is a footprint from a commissioner. Her name was uh, Shirley Peterson. Mm -hmm. And um, there is a statement in the uh, dash one that says, nevertheless, industry statistics cannot be used to establish an arm's length amount. Uh, that's a Shirley Peterson uh, uh, statement. It came from her, you know, and during the briefing, and the review, and I, we brought to her attention that this danger of just using industry statistics as well, right there, and she, she wrote, that's her statement. Uh, okay, but so if you don't want to use the population so that it doesn't appear like uh, an industry statistic and you don't know the composition of the industry, we, we drew random, random drawing. Right. So it is a fair game. So this idea that, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the controversy in terms of pricing is about the selection of comparables. I mean, I think that initially it's fact-based because, as I have said before, tax planning is done without proper documentation, mm -hmm. especially on the accounting side. So there is a lot of, a lot of uh, bloodletting and uh, bad will, you know, trying to uncover. But once you go over the facts and there is an understanding uh, of uh, of the company subject to audit, the whole controversy is about comparable. So we can avoid all of that. Yeah, that's actually pretty fascinating. And in, in fact, I mean, from an industry perspective, too, when a company evaluates their business and figures out what they want to accomplish as a business and what sort of targets that they want to look at as a business, that kind of should go back to, you know, the profit level indicators that are being applied from a transfer pricing perspective as well, right? Well, you know, that is something very unsatisfying uh, in, in the regulations. And uh, there was something... Uh, I would say uh, unusual uh, when I came into the regulation. When I came in, the regulations was already underway, and I came in because I had developed the comparable profits method and counsel, especially the three field uh, 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 councils, uh, heard of what I was doing. I was also earning a lot of money for the IRS because none of the economists in the accounting firms uh, could keep up with the innovation. <laughs> So, you know, I was earning a lot of money for the, for the government, so it brought to the attention of Washington. So I came in in a train that was already rolling, you know, to help council uh, incorporate the comparable profits method uh, in the regulations. And I began to look at the regulations from an architectural point of view, mm -hmm. like software architecture. You know, instead of looking at lines of code, I was wondering, what is the architecture uh, underlying here? And I... I recognize initially that we have this inconsistency because the comparable, the comparable uncontrolled price is deemed to be the most 
a reliable method because right. it's at a level of revenue. You break revenue into quantity and price. Mm -hmm. So the comp one control price is about the price as an element of as an element of of, of, of revenue. And there, the theory that we have in the regulation is what we call in economics the law of one price, right? So the comparable, the, 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 the controlled price is equal to the uncontrolled price plus a random error. It's a law of one price. Mm -hmm. If you if take the ratio, that ratio is one. If you take the difference, the difference is equal to a random error. It's a law of one price. When it comes to profit methods, it's the law of all prices, you know, so, Profits now depend on functions performed. It depends on the property or services, assets employed, risks assumed, and something which is really nonsense, contractual terms. Contractual terms only applies when you're dealing with agreements, mm -hmm. okay? Not when you're dealing with financial statements. There are no, there are no contractual terms and uh, explicit in financial statements. Unless you break your contractual terms, right? Uh, and then, yep, right. yep, yes. right. But so the point then is that we go from a model that is deemed to be the most reliable and really the ideal model, not used very much in practice, but ideal nevertheless, based on the law of one price, to a series of methods that are based on where the law of one price is, is not admitted to start. So that inconsistency I didn't like. I, I believe that the regulation should have an underlying theory of profits. And it doesn't. Uh, and I think that is a failure of the architecture. It's a failure of the drafting. And this failure has, of course, created an industry, which is the, the transfer pricing. That's uh, right. Uh, and we have all done very well uh, uh, in this industry. But uh, a lot of what happens in that industry uh, uh, involve um, collateral damage that could have been avoided if the architecture was more robust. Or more robust, or, or if, I could, if I could interpret, perhaps even more scientific in, in some ways, right? Um, based on more empirical evidence. But that's, that's excellent. I think what's, what's fascinating about this is going back to the inherent issue here, reliable profit level indicators, we have to be concerned about the base of the PLI, right? And the data and the reliability of the data that we're looking in. And then the, the form of the functions being performed by the different, by the legal entities actually involved in this transaction. So clearly a lot of work that still continues to need to be done in this space. And, and you really do have to, you know, I, I think this, this solidifies that point again, that transfer pricing is more of an art than a science, um, which is why we all enjoy it so much. So, Dr. Silva, thank you so much for being with us again. This has been enlightening, I think very educational, and I love the perspectives. Like, I, I, I do, um, you know, and I'm ho I hope the IRS doesn't, you know, doesn't get mad about your perspectives. <laughs> so, <laughs> appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Matt, do you want to wrap up with sure. the rapid fire?
Absolutely. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, Big Four. We've got the answer. Cross-Border Solutions AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp thanks so much for an informative discussion dr silva we have time for just a quick round of what we want to know dr silva you're no stranger to our hot seat but just in case anyone needs a refresher we're asking dr silva for a rapid fire round of questions about work career life basically anything we want to know are you ready let us see. Let, let's see. Here, here we go. If colleagues had to describe you in three words, what would they be? Fastidious would be one. Flexible would be another. And I think reasonable would be a third. Those are pretty good. I, I think, I think uh, the people in your, uh, your colleagues think very highly of you. And uh, if your life was a movie, who should play you? Uh, Charles Bronson, but he's dead. Oh, I like that. That's good. Charles Bronson's with, yes. with Mick Jagger's hair or something. Anyway, uh, higher fast, fire fast, agree or disagree? I don't like that. Because we, we have to, to ponder, we have to think, and uh, I don't think so fast. We have, we have, to, we have to be deliberate in our decisions. Yes, yes, yes. And how do you handle stressful moments in the office? Uh, I play with algebra. And what are your strategies for managing up? I think respect is important. So, and, uh, so I, I use two principles. One is parity. So I don't view anyone as higher than me. Mm -hmm. And I don't, people, uh, I don't view people as lower than me. And I carry this, uh, this attitude at home with my wife and with my children. And I carry this attitude with... Uh, with the people with whom I work, either as client, or as suppliers, or as employees. I insist on parity. I insist on, on symmetry. And the other, the other thing is uh, never to show intemperance. You know, so it's to, to be reasoned. And that's what I meant by being respectful. You know, that you have to control your devils. And uh, you cannot, uh, you know, so I, I have people who have been working with me for 20 years. I have two out of a staff of uh, 24. And I don't think that anyone could say that I have been intemperate. They, they know when I'm peeved. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And that was super fun, uh, Dr. Silva. Thank you and Lori and Mimi for a great round table this morning. I think we... <laughs>
And we return to our Terrytown offices to thank everybody for tuning in. And don't forget to subscribe to The Fiona Show on iTunes or Spotify. And we'll take you on a deep dive into transfer pricing issues, programs, concepts, court cases, you name it, every week. While you're there, you can also subscribe to our smaller sister podcast, The Fiona Show, hot off the press. And we'll tell you the transfer pricing headlines every week. The Fiona Show is hosted, engineered, and edited by yours truly, Matthew DeMello. Our executive producer, Marilyn Mitchum-Strom, writes our scripts. A special thanks to Terry Klein at Klein Productions in Sarasota, Florida, for providing us with top-notch service as an audio vendor and the sterling sound quality you've heard for our last two episodes. Catch you next week, everyone.